You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. Hey, everybody. This is the Warrior Priest Podcast, and I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. This is episode 33, the Epic of Gilgamesh. First, the prologue. I just want to dive right into this today. It's one of my probably favorite stories, along with Beowulf, from the ancient world, so to speak, the time when there was still such a thing as magic and curiosity, and the world was new, and it was dangerous, and it was primal, and it invited adventure. And Gilgamesh is from a time so far in the past, so long, long ago, that in some ways we don't even recognize that world. And yet, as I read, you'll discover that his tale, as ancient as it is, as prehistoric, almost prehistoric, virtually prehistoric as it is, it is a story that repeats itself to this very day. And perhaps that's because so many stories to the present tense have built upon the foundation laid by epics such as that of Gilgamesh, and then much, much later, the epic of Beowulf. And like I said, I just want to dive right in, because I'd love to read not just this prologue, but also just the first section, the coming of Enkidu, because I think this text... As I said, it, it, it'll speak for itself, as ancient and as foreign as it may sound. It is also very contemporary. Its themes are very contemporary. Its tropes are very contemporary. And I think it has a lot to teach us in the present tense, and that's why it persists down to the present tense. I'm going to be reading from the Penguin Classics edition. This is an old, old copy from the 1950s with um, a translation by N.K. Sondars. And it's got a long long introduction, about 60 pages. So if you are not familiar with the Epic of Gilgamesh and you're not comfortable or satisfied with Wikipedia, I highly recommend tracking down the Penguin Classics edition of the Epic of Gilgamesh by N.K. Sondars, S-A-N-D-A-R-S, with a very long introduction. It talks about the themes, the tropes, the hero's journey, translation choices, the history, and... the introduction itself is worth reading, if nothing else. But uh, for this episode and perhaps a few others that follow, I just want to let the story stand on its own merits and not get too deep into literary or historical criticism of the text and just let you hear it as is. So this is the Epic of Gilgamesh, prologue. Gilgamesh, king in Uruk. I will proclaim to the world the deeds of Gilgamesh. This was the man to whom all things were known. This was the king who knew the countries of the world. He was wise. He saw mysteries and knew secret things. He brought us a tale of the days before the flood. He went on a long journey, was weary, worn out with labor. Returning, he rested. He engraved on a stone the whole story. And that's, by the way, what I mean by prehistoric. Prehistoric in a classical sense means anything pre-writing, pre-inscription. And Gilgamesh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, was inscribed, as it says in the story itself. And whether it began as an oral tradition and then was later transcribed on clay tablets, for example, 
uh, or it was that's where it originated and it was recorded relative to its telling. The reason that we have this is because it was written down and it was written down by one Gilgamesh himself. At least that's how the narrator claims it. So to continue then, when the gods created Gilgamesh, they gave him a perfect body. Shamash, the glorious sun, endowed him with beauty. Adad, the god of the storm, endowed him with courage. The great gods made his beauty perfect, surpassing all others, terrifying like a great wild bull. Two-thirds they made him a god, and one-third a man. In Uruch he built walls, a great rampart, and the temple of blessed Anna, for the god of the firmament Anu, and for Ishtar, the goddess of love. Look at it still today, the outer wall where the cornice runs. It shines with the brilliance of copper. And the inner wall, it has no equal. Touch the threshold, it is ancient. Approach Anna, the dwelling of Ishtar, our lady of love and war, the like of which no latter-day king, no man alive can equal. Climb upon the wall of Uruk. Walk along it, I say. Regard the foundation terrace and examine the masonry. It is not burnt brick, or is it not burnt brick and good? The seven sages laid the foundations. And that is the prologue to Gilgamesh, king of Uruk. So already we have this established that Gilgamesh as king is king because he is two-thirds God and one-third man. So that's fortunate for him that he got the best parts of God and a little bit of man mixed in there. But that's why he's king. And being a great king, a god-like king, a demigod almost, he builds the walls of Uruk and the great rampart and the temple, and he makes a civilization, a city, because he knows everything, and he knows all the countries of the world, and he is wise, and he has seen mysteries, and he knows secret things because he was alive before the great flood. And that great flood persists in uh, narrative, in the Old Testament, for example, in the Jewish scriptures, here and in other places as far away as China. In fact, the character in Chinese for a flood is a man in a boat, in an ark. And so there is this prehistoric memory that persists in all of these narratives that there was a flood, a great flood. It's called the Antediluvian Flood. And the memory of it is something so significant because the event itself was so catastrophic, so cataclysmic, that it makes its way from prehistory into recorded history. And Gilgamesh here is the one who survived the flood and lived to tell about it, the whole story. And so there is something not only mysterious about Gilgamesh, but something unearthly because he is godlike, two-thirds god. And because of his knowledge and wisdom, and because of the man that he is, the king that he is, he is a bridge for us between heaven and earth. And if we want to know the will of the gods, well, we just have to read the Epic of Gilgamesh. And like Gilgamesh, go and do likewise. But as we're going to discover in what follows, perhaps that's not the best way to read this. And perhaps 
great Gilgamesh, this king in Uruk, who did so much, built so much, was so great in establishing the city and the society. Maybe that's not actually what the gods will. So let's continue then. Chapter 1, The Coming of Enkidu. Gilgamesh went abroad in the world, but he met with none who could withstand his arms till he came to Uruk. But the men of Uruk muttered in their houses, Gilgamesh sounds the bell for his amusement. His arrogance has no bounds by day or night. No son is left with his father, for Gilgamesh takes them all, even the children. Yet the king should be a shepherd to his people. His lust leaves no virgin to her lover, neither the warrior's daughter nor the wife of the noble. Yet this is the shepherd of the city, wise, comely, resolute. Now we hear about the human side, that one-third that is man. Now we get that side of the story. And so the two-thirds God part of him is wise, knows all things, knew all the countries of the world, knew mysteries, had seen things. He'd been around the block. He survived the flood. He is like a God in these things. And yet he is fully man. As he travels the world, there's no one who can beat him with a weapon until he came to Uruk. And then the men of Uruk in their houses, locked safely away behind closed doors, muttered, How can Gilgamesh be considered a great king? How can we call him shepherd of the city and wise and comely and resolute when he takes our sons and even our children and he kills them, he fights against them for his amusement, but he also enrolls them in the army to serve him and his lust, his lust has no bounds. Whether you're a virgin or whether you're a warrior's daughter or the wife of a noble person, it's all open season on the women of Uruk as far as Gilgamesh is concerned. And he rings the bell all the time, calls a meeting in the central square and says, hey, here's the way things are going to be. In fact, if you watch old westerns, this sometimes happens when the outlaws ride into town and the outlaw leader, the bandit leader, he rings the church bell. And everybody comes out of their businesses and their homes and wonders, hey, it's not Sunday morning. Why is the church bell ringing? And there, parked in front of the church on their horses, are the banditos, the villains. And out comes the leader of the villains, and he lays it out. This is the way things are going to be now. We like this little, this little village, this little town, and we think we're going to stay for a while. And so, just so you know, I'm the leader here. I'm the mayor. I'm the sheriff. These are my deputies. And this is the way things are going to be from now on. So the gods heard their lament. They heard the men of Uruk muttering in their houses. The gods of heaven cried to the Lord of Uruk, to Anu, the god of Uruk. A goddess made him strange as a savage bull. None can withstand his arms. No son is left with his father, for Gilgamesh takes them all. And is this the king? the shepherd of his people. His lust leaves no virgin to her lover, neither the warrior's daughter nor the wife of the noble. When Anu had heard their lamentation, the gods cried to Aruru, the goddess of creation. You made him, O Aruru. Now create his equal. Let it be as like him as his own reflection, his second self. 
Stormy heart for stormy heart. Let them contend together and leave Uruk in quiet. So the goddess conceived an image in her mind, and it was the stuff of Anu of the firmament. She dipped her hands in water and pinched off clay. She let it fall in the wilderness, and noble Enkidu was created. There was virtue in him of the god of war, of Ninurta himself. His body was rough. He had long hair like a woman's. It waved like the hair of Nisaba, the goddess of corn. His body was covered with matted hair like Sumakhan's, the god of cattle. He was innocent of mankind. He knew nothing of the cultivated land. So now, and these are very common tropes in ancient Near Eastern literature, especially in creation myths and in, um, yeah, creation myths. I'll just leave it there, not get too deep down that rabbit hole. But we have then Gilgamesh, who is worldly and yet godlike. And he is a man of the city. He is a king in the way of kings, of, of human kings. And he represents everything that is wrong about humanity, and yet everything that is noble about humanity. And yet, as the story begins, Gilgamesh abuses his authority as a king, and he abuses the people under his charge. He's not a shepherd. He is a terrorist, essentially. He strikes terror into their hearts. And again, as it's repeated in the second paragraph, he takes their sons, and then he has his way with their daughters. And so they're left wondering, what is this guy all about? I thought he was a demigod. I thought he was blessed by the gods, and yet he abuses us and terrorizes us, and it seems to actually take great joy at exploiting for his own benefit all of the gifts that the gods have given to him. And so they cry out to the goddess, and then she makes Enkidu. And he is, Enkidu is Gilgamesh's second self. He is the contradiction, so to speak, the opposite. So everything that Gilgamesh is, Enkidu is not. And Enkidu as we're about to find out, is not a man of the city. And this is a long-standing conflict that persists to this day. Just go to the Middle East. Um, in the Old Testament, for example, Abraham and Lot. Abraham chooses to stay out and be a, a, a herdsman, hunter-gatherer, so to speak, and Lot chooses to turn and go and become a city dweller. And there is a constant conflict in the ancient Near East between those who live in the cities and those who do not. Well, I mean, just primarily think about it. You live in a city, you cultivate the land around the city, you have water now, which in the Near East where this, this tale takes place, water is a precious resource. And then over the hill come herdsmen with their cattle and their sheep and their goats and their horses and all their people, and they want to drink all your water, and they want to gobble up all your crops, and they want to leave nothing for you. So of course there's antagonism, and for those who are out there in the fields who are herdsmen, they don't trust people in the city. In fact, if you want to know how this narrative persists to this day, just go read the story of the city mouse and the country mouse. It's the exact same story, and it's persisted for thousands and thousands of years. Since the beginning of civilization, there has always been a deep-seated mistrust of city people by country people, and vice versa. Think about how I live in Minnesota in the upper Midwest. I'm a Yankee, and when I lived in Louisiana, 
in Shreveport and Monroe. Shout out to Shreveport and Monroe, Louisiana. I was always referred to as a Northerner or a Yankee. And I definitely, at 18, 19 years old, had a stereotype in my head, a caricature of Southern people. And we all have it. Southern people are dumb because they talk slow and they talk with a drawl. And they ain't that educated. And, you know, they're kind of prejudiced and all that. And so you walk into it and you think to yourself, well, this person's stupid because they don't talk the way I talk. These are country people. Go read Flannery O'Connor, for example. She makes an industry out of writing about these kinds of folks in Georgia. And yet in the South, they have a caricature of us in the North, that we're fast talking and we're always moving and we're never satisfied. And fast talker, slick talker, con man. We're the carpetbagger from the post-Civil War days. Always trying to sell you something. Always coming off as super slick. Always working an angle. That's why we move fast and talk fast. And so this prejudice has existed since the very beginning, and it just perpetuates, perpetuates itself generation after generation. And so here, in one of the oldest stories that we have, one of the oldest stories in, that we have in existence, you can now see the roots of this distrust between city people and country people. And it's manifest in these, these people, these two men, Gilgamesh and Enkidu, who are alike, they are reflections of one another, but they, then being a reflection, are opposites. And they mirror one another, they are a second self to one another, and yet they are opposites. So it's a dichotomy. So now, Enkidu, he is innocent. He represents human innocence. And perhaps in a way, that is what, in a way, Gilgamesh also represents, even though it gets all twisted and perverted, is that Gilgamesh lived at a time of innocence, before the flood, before the gods, or God, if you are a Christian or a Jew, before God sent the flood to punish mankind for their great sin. But there was a time when men and women lived in harmony with God and with creation, with what was created by God. And so they fell. It was a consequence of their fall, which really wasn't a fall, it was a rebellion upward, a rebellion against God and what he had done in an attempt to exploit creation for our own benefit, to the desire to want to be God in God's place, essentially. We fell. We rebelled. And as a consequence, we lost that relationship with God and with creation. And so what Gilgamesh represents is that fallen state of man, that sinful man, that man who is cut off from his God and from the rest of creation, who is actually antagonistic and in conflict with his God and creation as a consequence of his rebellion of his desire to be God in God's place. Whereas Enkidu, here, once he is created, represents that pre-fallen, that pre-rebelled against God and creation state of man, as it's described here. Enkidu ate grass in the hills with the gazelle and lurked with wild beasts at the waterholes. He had joy of the water with the herds of wild game, but there was a trapper who met him one day face to face at the drinking hole, for the wild game had entered his territory. On three days he met him face to face, and the trapper was frozen with fear. He went back to his house with the game that he had caught, and he was dumb, benumbed with terror. So there you go. And Kidu, kind of like in Beowulf, whereas Grendel represents the forces of chaos and untamed primal creation, here also, not as malevolent, of course, as, as uh, Grendel in Beowulf, but here Enkidu represents 
that wild, primal, untamed state of nature, that pre-flood state of man. And here this trapper who catches Enkidu trespassing on his property, which is a tip-off there, right, that all of a sudden this isn't the creation that was given to us as a gift by God, but rather this is my territory, this is my land, and I'm trapping the animals that are on my land for my table. When he meets Enkidu, this primal creature, this man that is like him but unlike him, the trapper is struck dumb and is terrified by him because here is a man who is free, truly free, and he is unrestrained, unfettered by such things as territorial boundaries or rules of behavior, grooming standards, everything. His face was altered like that of one who has made a great, a long journey. The trapper had a thousand-yard stare. With awe in his heart, he spoke to his father. Father, there is a man unlike any other who comes down from the hills, and he is the strongest in the world. He is like an immortal from heaven. He ranges over the hills with wild beasts and eats grass. He ranges through your land and comes down to the wells. I am afraid and dare not go near him. He fills in the pits which I dig and tears up my traps set for the game. He helps the beast to escape, and now they slip through my fingers. This is another added bonus, is that pre-flood, people ate vegetables. They ate from the land. They ate whatever was growing. And it was only after the flood that people started to eat animals, because after the flood, there was no vegetation left to eat. Obviously, there was a flood and destroyed everything. And therefore, until the crop came in, they started to eat animals. And then after the crop came in, they continued to eat animals. In fact, in the Old Testament, in Genesis, God gave the animals to Noah and his family to eat. Another reason that they were on the ark, not just to repopulate the earth, but for food. Here again, Enkidu, he eats with the animals, the grass of the field. He eats whatever the gods produce for him to eat. So he doesn't cook his food. He doesn't need fire. He doesn't need a house or a table. He just eats whatever everything else in creation is because Enkidu is a part of creation. He is a creature. He was created. Gilgamesh and the trappers and the, and the trapper here, the son of, of this, this father, they represent society. They represent man's attempt to bring creation under his control. And since Enkidu is not under their control, he doesn't care, like I said, about boundaries or about who these animals belong to. They don't belong to anybody. And he, is, he lives in harmony with God and with the animals. And therefore, when the trapper tries to snag and snare these animals, Enkidu helps them escape. And so there it is. There's that dichotomy. There's that conflict, that antagonism between the way things were and the way things are. So the trapper's father opened his mouth and said to the trapper, My son in Uruk lives Gilgamesh. No one has ever prevailed against him. He is strong as a star from heaven. Go to Uruk, find Gilgamesh, extol the strength of this wild man. Again, wild, meaning untamed, meaning essentially not bound by any laws or standards of society. And ask Gilgamesh to give you a harlot, a prostitute, a wanton from the temple of love. Return with her. And let her woman's power overpower this man. So now we move into the second part of this, which is that the temple, 
in the city of Uruk, where the gods and goddesses are worshipped. They are all fertility gods and also gods of death. They require sacrifice in order to, therefore, produce fertility, whether it be female fertility or the fertility of your livestock or the fertility of your fields. This is how religion works. It's sacrificial in nature. It's transactional. I offer a sacrifice, and depending on the purity of the sacrifice and the sincerity of the one who sacrifices it, the gods will either pay attention or not and do so in such a way that we get this blessing that we want. Now, in a fertility cultist, what you have in your temple are prostitutes, temple prostitutes, because if you want to get the gods' attention, this is how you do it. You go into the temple, you make an offering in the form of money or trade, and then you have sex with a prostitute, a temple prostitute. And in this way, you literally provoke, you titillate the gods so that they pay attention by letting them watch you have sex with one of the temple prostitutes who are set aside for this very specific purpose. That's why they're not street prostitutes, they're temple prostitutes. They're different in this society. And so the trapper's father says, you need to go get you one of those temple prostitutes and bring her to Enkidu. And she is an expert in the ways of manipulating men's emotions and in mind control, so to speak. And so if you set her in front of him, because she is practiced in the ways of men, in the psychology of men and how men behave, she will lure him in and she will seduce him and she will overpower him. So when next he comes down, the trapper's father said, and he needs to drink at the wells, she will be there, stripped naked. And when he sees her beckoning, he will embrace her and then the wild beasts will reject him. And again, this is another staple of almost all religions when it comes to this whole matter of how we lost our original innocence, which is lust. That instead of loving God and loving our neighbor as ourself, we turned away from God and loving God with all of ourselves and and turned towards each other. And again, in Genesis chapter 3 in the Bible, the woman took the fruit, ate it, gave it to the man. He ate it. Their eyes were opened. They were enlightened. And they saw that they were naked, and they were ashamed. That in taking something that was not given to them in the way of gift, but rather something they thought they were entitled to, taking something by force, they rebelled against God and against his, his words and against his, his promises and his prohibitions. And in doing so, they were enlightened. They turned away from facing God and turned toward each other. They faced each other. And that, then, is when they recognized We're naked. That is, naked in the sense of we're vulnerable. We're exposed. Have you not seen the lions and the bears and the tigers? Oh my. How did we not know the kind of danger we were in before? It's a miracle that we weren't killed and eaten by them. Instead of facing up to God, instead of receiving everything as gift, instead of living in harmony with all of creation, being a part of creation as a creature, they turned away from loving God, and his words, and they turn toward the love of each other. And so in the Catholic Church and in broadly speaking Christianity, the whole history of the church, in the history of other religions, what is sin? It is the wrong kind of love. It's lust. Concupiscence is the old word they used to use. And so this is the point, is that if we can get Enkidu to fall in love, to be seduced by a woman and to embrace her, that is to lay with her, to have sex with her, he will no longer be innocent. 
again, think about this and the rights of manhood and the rights of womanhood. When a, when a girl becomes a woman, uh, when she has her first period and enters into puberty and the right that they then have to mark this occasion and the right of manhood when a boy crosses into puberty. Sometimes it's ritual circumcision. Sometimes they take them out into the jungle or the woods and they go through a death and resurrection ceremony. There is something about puberty where we mark a, a Passover from innocence to not innocent, that is childishness or childhood to adulthood. And so Enkidu is like a child in that sense to them. And that the way then to get him to break from creatures and from his state of innocence is to send this prostitute. And then the animals reject him. If you want to see how this works, go read The Jungle Book by Rudyard Kipling. How is it that Mowgli finally is enticed, seduced out of the jungle to go and live with men? Men who, by the way, he was taught to hate by the animals who took him in and embraced him after Shere Khan had killed his parents. It was a woman. In fact, there are sequels to The Jungle Book by Rudyard Kipling about how Mowgli tries to go back into the jungle and the consequences of that. I highly recommend it. Rudyard Kipling is a fantastic author, and at some point maybe I need to read The Jungle Book. He's also got some great poems. But this is the point, is that these tropes persist throughout all of, of, um, of literature. And there are narrative after narrative after narrative that pick up these themes. So like I said, this is an ancient tale that might seem strange at first and may need some explaining as far as the cultural practices and historical context, but the major themes are very familiar to us. So the trapper set out on his journey to Uruk and addressed himself to Gilgamesh saying, a man unlike any other is roaming now in the pastures. He is as strong as a star from heaven, and I am afraid to approach him. He helps the wild game to escape. He fills in my pits and pulls out my traps. Gilgamesh said, Trapper, go back. Take with you a prostitute, a child of pleasure. At the drinking hole, she will strip, and when he sees her beckoning, he will embrace her, and the game of the wilderness will surely reject him. She is a child of pleasure. And as Epictetus, I believe, said, no, it was Marcus Aurelius in his Meditations. I was just reading this the other day, is that there is no counter to justice. Justice is justice, and all men know justice. It's, it's written on their hearts. But there is a counter to pleasure, and that is discipline or self-control. And so, so long as Enkidu maintains his self-control, as long as he remains disciplined, he will not give in to pleasure. And if he does not give in to pleasure, if he does not allow his lusts and his cravings to make the decisions for him, well, then he's safe from this woman. But if he gives in to pleasure, if he falls for her seductions, all of creation will turn against him. So the trapper returned, taking the prostitute with him. After a three days' journey, they came to the drinking hole. And there they sat down. The prostitute and the trapper sat facing one another and waiting for the game to come. For the first day and for the second day, the two sat waiting. But on the third day, the herds came. They came to drink, and Enkidu was with them. The small, wild creatures of the plains were glad of the water, and Enkidu with them, who ate grass with the gazelle and was born in the hills. And she saw him, the savage man, come from far off in the hills. The trapper spoke to her. There he is. Now, woman, 
Make your breasts bare. Have no shame. Do not delay, but welcome his love. Let him see you naked. Let him possess your body. When he comes near, uncover yourself and lie with him. Teach him, the savage man, your woman's art. For when he murmurs love to you, the wild beasts that shared his life in the hills will reject him. I think it's interesting, too, on that point. It's come up now several times in the story, in these opening pages, that Enkidu is referred to as savage. And nowadays, at least in the world that I live in and the people that I hang out with, savage has been taken and turned on its head. And it's not a pejorative, it's not seen as a negative, it's seen as a positive, it's actually a, uh, a compliment. And so what most of the world nowadays refers to as an insult, you're a savage. He's behaving like a savage. We talk about this with our kids. You're acting like a bunch of savages. Well, one, it's not new. It's been around for ten, you know, tens of thousands of years here. But also, it is, depending on which side of the flood you're standing on, a compliment. That to be savage means to be unchained from all of these societal mores and laws and ways of behavior and to be free and to live in harmony with all of creation. And that what the trapper refers to as the savage Enkidu, well, maybe for us, savage isn't such a bad word after all. Maybe in our hearts we all want to be like Enkidu, and maybe that's really what tortures us. And maybe that's the true tragedy of human existence, is that when we read the epic Gilgamesh, we can relate with Gilgamesh, but we really want to be like Enkidu. Because Enkidu represents something that we all, well, strive for. I mean, why do you think we put animals in a zoo so that we can go right up to the glass and have them on, you know, inches away from our face? Because we know, we know inherently, for whatever reason, we know that we're supposed to live with them. <clears throat> it's why we have pets. It's why my dog weighs over 180 pounds after we put her on a diet. I own an English Mastiff. It's because... I want to live with large creatures. One of my favorite YouTube channels is the, the Lion Whisperer, this man in um, South Africa, I believe. Richards is his last name, who started a sanctuary for lions and panthers, right? Panthers and black leopards. But um, he rescues these lions when they're, they're babies and they imprint upon him and he becomes their mom. And in a certain way, the alpha of this pride of lions. And so he can just walk amongst them and they act toward him like a house cat would act towards you or me. There's something that we, we inherently grasp about that, that we all want. We all want to be able to play with lions and we all want to walk in the woods with bears. And I have a tiger tattooed on my left forearm and the Japanese character is for tiger, heart, spirit, and mind or heart, spirit, and soul. There's something about nature, about creation, that we yearn to be a part of, and yet at the same time we recognize, and if we don't, then we're going to get eaten, and that's going to you know, be the tip-off. We also recognize that we're not welcome there. I can't walk onto the African savanna unprotected. I'm going to get trampled by elephants. I can't just go into the ocean and swim with the sharks. I'll be devoured. I can't go into the woods 
without the proper gear and the proper equipment. I will die. And so we want to be there. We know, like I said, inherently, we know we belong there. <clears throat> and there's something about us that yearns for that. It's, it's the romanticism of an O. Henry novel and the leather stocking tales about, the, you know, Last of the Mohicans is part of the leather stocking tales, James Fenimore Cooper. It's why we romanticize woodsmen and trappers and fur traders in the, in the Old West, or even on, before the Old West was the Old West. There's something about it that we know we're supposed to be a part of it, and yet we're not allowed to enter into it without weapons and without the right equipment. Enkidu represents all of that, and they call him a savage. And yet, at least for myself, it's kind of what I pray for all the time, is that, according to my reading of the Bible anyways, when you read the prophets, like Isaiah, for example, and Jeremiah and some of the minor prophets, they point to the future, to the return of the Messiah, the return of God. And at that time, all of creation will be reset, and it will become a Genesis 2 kind of world, a pre-fall-into-sin kind of world. And even in pop culture, you're familiar with the prophet Isaiah, the lion will lay down with the lamb, the baby will be able to stick his hand in the hole of the asp, that we will, you know, the, lion, the lamb and the wolf will live together in, in peace. This is a prophecy that is prehistoric that is passed down generation to generation. It is the hope of all humanity that out there in the future, at some point, the way of Gilgamesh is destroyed once and for all, and the way of Enkidu is ushered back in, and that everything that is a consequence of our rebellion against our God and what God has created, all the pavement in the world and all the houses and all the clothing and all of the things that we've made to protect ourselves from each other and from the rest of creation will be destroyed. And we will be able to eat with the animals and drink with the animals. Dr. Doolittle, right? That's the whole story of Dr. Doolittle. Dr. Doolittle is pre-Genesis 3 Adam, man. And we all want to be Dr. Doolittle. There you go, another narrative that reminds us of a, a time before creation and ourselves were cut kind of in divide, you know, divided from one another. So the prostitute was not ashamed to take Enkidu. She made herself naked and welcomed his eagerness. And as he lay on her murmuring love, she taught him the woman's art. <laughs> For six days and seven nights they lay together. Six days and seven nights. Six days and seven nights. I just want to repeat that for emphasis. They lay together. Because Enkidu had forgotten his home in the hills. But when he was satisfied, he went back to the wild beasts. And then, when the gazelle saw him, they bolted away. When the wild creatures saw him, they fled. Enkidu would have followed, but his body was bound as though with a cord. His knees gave way when he started to run. His swiftness was gone. And now the wild creatures had all fled away. Enkidu was grown weak because wisdom was in him and the thoughts of a man were in his heart. So he returned and sat down at the woman's feet and listened intently to what she said. You are wise, Enkidu, and now you have become like a god. Why do you want to run wild with the beasts in the hills? Come with me. I will take you to strong-willed Uruk, to the blessed temple of Ishtar of Anu, of love and of heaven. 
And there Gilgamesh lives, who is very strong, and like a wild bull, he lords it over men. And there it is. There's the fault. He is bound as if chained up, and his knees, they tremble, and they're weak, and his swiftness is gone. He can't keep up with the gazelle anymore. He can't jump like the deer. He can't see like the eagle or hear like the bat. He is now simply a man. And so all of creation flees from him because he is weak. He has wisdom in him, and the thoughts of a man were in his heart. Now, finally, he is like Gilgamesh, like the trapper, like the trapper's father, like the temple prostitute. He's just like them. And like I pointed out, he has become like a god. And now his attention is focused and turned away from creation and just living in harmony with all of creation and enjoying being a creature, being at peace with God and creation. And now all of his focus is turned toward being like a god, coming back to the city and becoming civilized, and to put away the savagery that marked his previous life. Now he is like Gilgamesh. So when she had spoken, Enkidu was pleased, and he longed for a comrade, for one who would understand his heart. The gods don't understand Enkidu anymore, or at least he believes that. The animals don't understand Enkidu anymore, or at least he believes that. And so he just wants a friend who understands him. And isn't that in the heart of every individual human being on earth? At root, isn't that the cause of every mental illness, the cause of every war, the cause of every suicide, the cause of every divorce and broken relationship? It's that we just want one person, just one, to understand us, to understand what's in our heart. And when, in the course of time, we believe that we are not going to find that person, how hopeless does life become? How hopeless do we become? How hopeless are the people that we meet every day? Because they know, no matter how many friends they have, no matter how many acquaintances they surround themselves with, no matter how popular they are or famous, no one understands what's in their heart. In fact, that also then is a part of the change from being a child to being an adult. Children assume that everyone understands them. And then, about the time they hit puberty, they start to realize, oh, these adults have no idea what's going on. These people are fallible. These people make stupid mistakes. They have bad habits. They don't know everything. They're not the all-knowing, all-wise, godlike person that I thought they were three years ago. They're just a bigger version of me. And then that's why you have teenage rebellion. And sometimes it persists past the teenage years because no one understands what's in my heart. And really, what we miss is that there's God who makes us, who understands our heart, and that's it. Because until everything is restored and put right again by God, no one can understand our own heart. Because isn't it interesting that wisdom is actually considered, well, bad actually, <clears throat> that wisdom makes one like a god. And in that, in the gaining of wisdom, Enkidu is hopeless. He is despondent. He just wants a friend who understands his heart. And so wisdom, at least in the old days, 
Wisdom wasn't necessarily all that we think it is today. When we say, oh, he's so wise, let's all go to him and, and listen to him and get advice and sage advice from him. Well, wisdom is actually a consequence of turning away from God and turning away from creation and chasing after your lusts and giving in to pleasure, lacking self-control and discipline, actually. Wisdom, as it was put to me, is simply the experience of failure applied to another situation. Wisdom is just, and I tell this to people all the time, when they say, man, where'd you get all that wisdom from? And I tell them, well, if you live long enough and you don't kill yourself or someone else doesn't kill you, there's a lot of failure behind you. And all I'm doing is sharing my failures with you. And hopefully you can then fail more intelligently than I did, to quote Henry Ford. And that wisdom really is just the experience of failure applied to a situation in the present. If you burn yourself with fire because you didn't know that fire did that, well, hopefully you learned from that. And in the future, you can instruct other people and explain to them why you don't want to put your hand in fire. And hopefully then they don't. But everybody at some point has to get burned before they gain wisdom regarding fire. And on and on it goes. I'm reading E.B. Sledge, amongst the old breed, uh, a very famous, maybe the most famous uh, account of the Second World War and what it was like to be a Marine, a GI, in the Pacific. And he fought in Peleliu and Okinawa, and the horror of it. And Sledge talks about how much he hates war and how he wishes there that there would never be another war again because of man's inhumanity to man, and yet he also recognizes that 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 way in which we turn on each other is inevitable. It's in the heart of every man and woman, and that eventually we will turn on each other and attack one another, and that we need to fight, if for nothing else, to maintain peace. And so it's a cliche from the early 80s, Soldier Fortune magazine days, but sometimes the only way to peace is through superior firepower. Is it good? No. But is it the lesser of two evils? Absolutely. When evil manifests itself, and there are no good men standing on the wall, standing guard, protecting us, well, then we've taken the privilege of freedom and we've squandered it. We've behaved irresponsibly with it. We've allowed ourselves to become complacent. And here in Kidu, this savage man who represents everything that we used to be, everything that we actually hope to be but can never be, the first thought that the trapper has is, this guy needs to be corrupted. This guy needs to be brought down. This guy needs to be converted so that he's just like the rest of us. So like I said, and I'll wrap it up here, maybe in some ways the best thing that we can do then is to embrace that savage history, the savagery of someone like Enkidu. Not savagery in the way of being murderous and uncouth and unkind and just destruction wherever we go. That's actually the way of Gilgamesh, who was all wise, by the way. But rather to try and live at peace, in peace and in harmony with all of creation and to recognize that we're not separate from creation. We are creatures ourselves, and we are a part of creation. We are a part of this world, and we were put here for each other, but not just for each other, but for all creatures, everything that is created. And that when we allow ourselves to become undisciplined 
when we lose self-control, we lack self-control, and we give in to pleasure, and we allow our cravings to seduce us, that actually is when we turn away from God and we turn away from one another. And that in our craving to be wise, in our desire to be like gods, we end up turning away from the source of our life, the source of our peace, the source of our identity as creatures and what our purpose and the goal of life is. And so for this episode anyways, and we'll come back next week and read about what happens when Gilgamesh and Enkidu meet one another, perhaps the, the sum of this episode is that maybe it's not so bad to be a savage. And over the years, that term has been abused and turned into something that's negative, like I said earlier. But maybe, just maybe, our yearning to get back to a world where we can all be like Enkidu. Maybe being a savage isn't such a bad thing after all. So thank you again for listening to the podcast. Thank you for all the support. If there's something you'd like to to have me read and reflect on and have that discussion, I'd love to hear back from you. You can uh, DM me on Instagram at the Warrior Priest Podcast or on my personal account, Warrior Priest. You can find me on Facebook at the Warrior Priest Podcast. And you can get a hold of uh, me through email via Anchor FM, the Warrior Priest Podcast. Go check out the website, warriorpriestpodcast.wordpress. Otherwise, I will see you next time for the midweek debrief, actually, coming up on Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, February 26, 2020. So I'll see you then. Peace.